Hello, folks. Pull up a chair and join us on this adventure we call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of this program we call the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm your host, Wade Padgett. And as always, I am your designated survivor host in the bunker, Tane Kell. <laughs> so today we have a little bit of different show for you. Again, we're going to try to give you a break from just the two of our voices for a while, but it's going to be maybe even more awesome than usual, right, Tane? Yeah, Wade, uh, the quality of the programming never wavers here at the Good Judgment Podcast. So today in studio, we have a very special guest, Judge Jim Bodiford, who is a senior judge for the Superior Courts here in Georgia. And Tane, um, tell the people a little bit about Judge Bodiford's background so that they understand why we chose him, of all the awesome senior judges in Georgia, to come and appear here at the podcast. Sure. Well, of course, Jim and I practiced together for many years on the, on the bench in Cobb County, but I dare say that Judge Bodiford, Jim, uh, has tried some of the most high-profile cases in Georgia history. No doubt about it. He even did – He his – we felt those those repercussions of his uh, work over in the Augusta area. So with that being said, welcome, Jim, to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank <laughs> Our studio audience loves it when we have a guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jim, let's get right to it. I, I, I know uh, a little bit about your career. Just tell us a little bit about your background and when you got on the bench and that sort of thing. And then, and then I'm going to talk about some of these cases that, uh, that you tried over the years. Sure. I, uh, I went to law school late. I was 27. Um, so I graduated back in the old days, older than you, you two. You could take the bar in uh, the last year of, of law school. So I, I took it, passed it, and, uh, of course, went out and started practicing law and making less money than I had been doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but everybody's experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, uh, it was about three and a half years later, uh, I had an opportunity to go over to our district attorney's office, and I admired every one of those. They knew how to try a jury trial, and that's all I ever wanted to do. And I knew I, I was over there two months and I knew that I'd found my calling. Uh, so uh, I was there for uh, two and a half years or so. I was then appointed uh, chief magistrate uh, of Cobb. I spent nine years there and then I uh, went to the Superior Court uh, in on January 1st, 1995. That's great. And, and, and still, you're still over there, basically. I mean, you're a senior judge now traveling the state, but, uh, but you still also work out of Cobb County as well. So that's, that's been quite a, quite a career. I do. I do. They're, they're nice enough to give me an office. And, uh, and you know this, Tane, better than anybody. They give me a parking place. Yeah, and parking is yeah. very, very valuable. Yeah. And so. Judge Bodiford, early in this podcast thing we, we've started, I guess, four years ago, um, we had a senior judge come, and, and it was great because he gave us some rules that, for judges to follow and how they should be judges and things like that. And so with the recent developments that have been in the news, some of our uh, – we, 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 we make a joke that we only have one listener, but our <laughs> listener called and said that um, they had a, a really daunting assignment upcoming, a big case, a, a big high-profile case. And they would love to have some insight on things like logistics, things like 
how to, where to, and we, and we, and, and Tane had always said this, you know, we need to get Jim Bodiford on here because he's tried all these high profile cases. Tane, talk about some of the high profile cases he's talked about where people might have heard of. Absolutely. And, and you know, some of these are, are cases that, that have been around for a while, but they were some of the biggest cases ever in Georgia. Things like uh, the Fred Tokars murder trial. Uh, you also handled the tri-state crematory case, uh, the Lynn Turner, what we call the Black Widow murder trial, uh, and probably most famously, at least in my opinion, the Brian Nichols murder case, among a bunch of other cases uh, that you tried as well. So when you are as a judge and you get assigned this for whatever reason, either it was your circuit or you get appointed from another circuit or whatever, what what are some of the first things you do? What what crosses your mind? What are what are the things that you're thinking? Uh, first of all, you have an anxiety attack, <laughs> and then <laughs> that is very honest uh, and, then, and true. Yeah. And then, in a few minutes later, you begin preparing. You can't start preparing too early, and you can't uh, you can't ever stop preparing. Uh, and uh, so, I, I've I found that. Uh, I don't know. I, I think in my case, luck plays a part of it. Uh, but but I would say for most folks, don't count on luck. And uh, so uh, but you've got to prepare. We all of us in this room have tried cases. And uh, s- some of these are are not a lot different other than they're high profile cases and everybody knows about them. Um, everybody know, knows about them. And then you have the press, uh, <laughs> the, the press, which can take up as much as, as 20 to 50% of your time, uh, uh, dealing, dealing with them. I had a pretty good relationship with the press. I'm, I'm glad to say, uh, I think it, they were, I was, I would say that I was a benevolent leader and, uh, that, that I was happy to have them in there. Uh, I was happy to have them in there as long as they control their own group. Well, and at the time you're talking about too, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, you know, we were talking about big cameras and, you know, they wanted to put lights in your courtroom and all of those things to enhance what they were doing. And, and each individual, you know, TV station, radio station, they all had to have their own person there in the courtroom at that point in time as well, right? They, uh, interesting enough, we know when we're, we're doing this podcast that um, uh, there's a big high profile case just a few miles away. And um, they talk about, National News talks about, well, Georgia allows cameras in the courtroom. They certainly, they certainly uh, did not by by a matter of rule back in 1997, and uh, they had a knockdown drag out in the Fred Tokars trial of whether cameras would be in there, and the defense didn't want them in there, and the state said, "All right, uh, we'll we'll agree," and uh, notwithstanding that, uh, I allowed them in there, and so I remember the. Um, I, I read a few editorials that really made me look good. I was like, I was thinking I was something special until the Speaker of the House uh, said, I can't believe any judge in Georgia would have actually done that. And uh, so um, they, they, but now, now all of our courtrooms are open. Obviously, there are rules to follow. Uh, Rule 22, we talked yeah, about, we yeah, actually have a whole yeah, episode on that. Yeah. On that. So, and, but, and I'm curious, Jim. It, when when you were having that debate about cameras in the courtroom, um, 
I'm assuming the press was participating in whatever hearing you had as well on that. The uh, I used to say to folks when they would call me and um, or ask me to come down and talk to them, they had a high profile uh, case way back then. I would say, you're going to save yourself two days of high powered Atlanta lawyers if you'll just let them in, because <laughs> because every every media outlet had their own lawyer and uh, they were all. <laughs> a hundred percent versed in this law. And And it's uh, completely collateral to state versus whoever, Joe Smith. It's completely collateral to what you're trying to get done, which is the trial of a criminal case. You're having to have this whole big litigation about the terms and conditions of media coverage that doesn't have anything to do with the case. I mean, the trial of the case. You're you're absolutely right. So I guess it we had motions within a within a trial that yeah. were, that were collateral, and um, and then obviously over the years it 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 then became the norm of to have cameras in the courtroom and to exclude them today. You'd you know it would it would take a uh, it would take an an act of the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about the, uh, another thing that always, at least I thought about and uh, that I've experienced when I've had a, a somewhat high profile case. And, and that is just the public pressure on you as the judge. And I don't mean like direct contact or anything like that, but just knowing that there's scrutiny out there for the things that you're doing, the ru- the rulings that you're making and that sort of thing. What's it like to, to deal with that as a judge in a, you know, again, a high profile case that's in the news every day? So if I'm, if I'm in advising somebody, um, if I'm advising somebody, I'm going to tell them, you know, you think you have a tough skin, but you better grow about two or three more inches because uh, particularly today, you know, I said, don't don't read any social media uh, because they'll be commenting on your hair or lack thereof. And and uh, and that so, hurts. I know personally that the, hurts. When the, they do um, that. So, uh, yes, you've got those ex- extra. But I think we as experienced judges are used to that. You know, um, you can make the best decision in the world and at least one side is going to be upset. So uh, uh, in this case, it's just it it magnifies uh, where if everybody knows about the case, if it's in Kroger or Publix and everybody knows about it, then uh, it's different than a lot of the cases that we do. So did you find yourself not going out as much or not being in the places you would normally be outside of work during these high profile cases? The uh, uh, we When we did the Fred Tokar's case, when I actually... Uh, uh, for two months, and I would come home on a Saturday night. We worked on Saturday half the day, and come home on a Saturday night. Uh, I told Nancy, "I'm not going to Kroger. I'm not going to Publix because I I went there about four weeks in just to to grab. Uh, Lord knows I wouldn't have grabbed any beer or whatever. But, <laughs> but I uh, I heard a heard a ten year old tell her mother, "It looks like a ten year old." I think that's the Tokar's judge. And, you know, like, and, what in the and, world? Yeah. I think the that's, children know you know, that can't yeah. be good. And so I'm like, I didn't know what to do. I just go the other way. So, yes, you sort of stayed away. You sort of stayed away. Uh, in the uh, Nichols case, when it was finished, I went to uh, – we finished it on a Saturday uh, in December, and I went to a Falcons game on Sunday. I've never been on the camera – before where they the the yeah. big camera with seventy thousand people and all of a sudden uh, uh, the fr- my friend that was with me a guy friend hits me and says look you're, <laughs> you're on the jumbo so, you know that's that's that was re- 
weird, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. at least I didn't have popcorn kernels in my <laughs> teeth or something. Yeah. So what do you do when you start planning security for one of these trials? When when you're thinking about now, to be fair, you have done trials in your county. You have done trials not in your county. So. So maybe there's a difference. I don't know. But how do you start coordinating that? Do you do that early? You know, you know, you you do. And I've been lucky in the two cases, two out of the three cases that I tried uh, out of my circuit. It had been done before I, I actually inherited it. I was the closer. <laughs> I, I was I was the, the trial judge. Um, uh, but it, it had been done and been done masterfully. Um uh, but obviously, that's a huge part of the pie there. This, you know, the security and coordinating it. Um, whether whether you have a case, I I had a death penalty case in Cobb that nobody knew about, but we probably spent three to four days just in security, non sequestered jury. Uh, uh, that I personally was just in there for for three or four uh, weeks and uh, three or four days and you you don't know about that case thankfully but uh, there was a lot of preparation that went went in. Let's also talk about so <laughs> when you draw uh, one of these high profile cases, you also usually draw some high profile attorneys that go along with those cases. How do you as a judge make sure again that? that the sideshow doesn't take over the circus. In other words, that, that, you know, you don't have somebody else who, who is, is dominating um, these proceedings that you're having to preside over. Well, I have been lucky in all of my high profile cases. I have had superb, really top shelf lawyers. You really did. I mean, when I looked at some of the names of some of the people who were involved in all those cases, they were, Really, some of the best of the best. When when I issued the order, I talked about Tokars before, but what I I issued at that point, I I guess it was certainly surprising to some some folks about we're going to have a camera in the courtroom. We'll have uh, court TV was covered. The Tokars um, gavel to gavel. I mentioned the high quality of lawyers because everybody said, "Well, the lawyers are going to act like this, or their lawyers going to act like that." And I, Said I, I don't think my lawyers are going to act like that, and if they do, we'll we'll have a reckoning. But um, uh, I, I also was lucky in that particular case in that it followed O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the fact that I just tried it and that we tried tow cars and and uh, death penalty case in uh, fifty nine days, it didn't take weeks and didn't stop at three o'clock. Made me look pretty good. <laughs> so you have yeah. said something twice that that we talked about sort of generally in in high profile cases. Your work schedule when when you pick a jury, uh, once you have a jury selected, you have mentioned working on Saturday, for example. Did you work if you had one of these cases? Would you work on Saturday? I don't think I would anymore. But I, I uh, in the Tokars case, because they were sequestered, we worked on Saturday. And the only reason we didn't work on Sunday is uh, the jurors just basically said, hey, we, we need a day. And whatever they needed, they were going to get being sequestered. In the Brian Nichols case, which lasted five to six months, we worked on Saturdays in jury selection. And there was a lot of – there was a lot of uh, – uh, a lot of talk from the lawyers about they didn't want to do that. Grumbling? In is fact, that, is it? In fact, <laughs> one side only wanted to work Monday through Thursday. And I said, well, I think you have to go to California for that. You know, so, and I, and I know I'm picking on them. And I, I know 
you, all of us know some very fine judges uh, in California. But we worked on Saturday to pick to uh, to pick jurors. Once we uh, started the case, though, we just worked Monday through Friday. Now they were not sequestered. They were they were not not sequestered. So, and I think that was that was as as much as we could possibly push. But particularly if you were going to have the jury seated for four months. So I'm going to go off script a little bit and ask you to educate us a little bit. We don't have, well, two things. We don't have hardly any sequestered juries anymore because the defense bar has sort of rethought that and have realized that's actually more dangerous than maybe potential exposure to news coverage. Secondly, changing venue. We don't have a lot of that anymore. But when we do, let's start there, if you don't mind. What sort of things does the judge have to look for? Because I think there has to be some compatibility between the two communities and all that. How do you decide how far to go, where to go, et cetera? And, and when do you make that decision? Yeah. Well? The, uh, in the, uh, th- 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 this will show you. I, you know, I'm pretty good at these high-profile cases because I've made so many mistakes. <laughs> and, and, and typically I learn from my mistakes. the greatest educator, mistakes. really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for me, for me particularly. Um, in, the, in the antifreeze killer case, I, I told a very fine uh, defense lawyer, we're going to be able to get a, get a jury here. And he said, oh, no, we won't. And I said, I, look, I know. I, I'm, I'm the judge. I'm the smart one here. Well, he, <laughs> two and a half days later, I was, uh, you're right. Sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, uh, and uh, so that was by trial and error. On Fred Tokars, we... Uh, Everybody agreed. Listen, we've got to we've got to move that. And you're right. You have to look at the demographics and the law. Uh, you you have to look at it, and then you've got to have a willing jurisdiction. You've got to have one that opens you in open arms. And the um, the ones that I've been involved with just treated us like kings and queens. I mean, we were we were we were down in Perry, Georgia. Uh, thankfully, they had a new courthouse with an open courtroom and uh, an open courtroom, and they were just, whatever we wanted, uh, they would they would do. Do you generally take Cobb County Sheriff's deputies to run security, or, do, or is it a combination of Cobb and, say, Houston County? If, if Cobb, uh, the two that I've moved for Cobb, uh, uh, they use the local security, but I think Cobb had to pay for it. And so, which, which makes perfect sense that they, uh, now I had my own security where the sheriff said on, on those cases and, and in the Fulton County case where I just went down and tried their case, uh, the sheriff had my own security with, with me. The Cobb County Sheriff sent Cobb County deputies. Right. And so I said to the sheriff, listen, I appreciate it going down to Fulton County, but I said, this is not, this is not a Cobb County case. This is not, you know. Uh, and, and, um, so I was trying to really talk him out of it, which I would advise anybody to do the exact opposite today. <laughs> and one of the things that made it so delightful was, uh, was I had a, a fellow by the name of, in, and Tane would know him, uh, David Martin, who looked like a, uh, who, who, um, uh, 
just was perfect and everybody liked him. In fact, he got two job offers from Fulton County when we left <laughs> and he was about ready to retire uh, from Cobb and went down there, I think worked with the DA's office for years, but he was with me the whole time. And that gave me, if I didn't have to worry about my personal safety or looking around or finding a parking space. No, either, right. He, <laughs> he, he'd pick me up at 7 AM and he would have, he'd have a diet Coke ready for me. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's, and, now so that I, is above and beyond. I said six months later, I said to Nancy, well, I'm going, you know, we finished the case. And obviously I was happy we'd finished the case. And the Nichols case, thankfully, we did not have an appeal. Uh, um, uh, I said, where's Dave Martin with a warmed up car? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, that's a, uh, you get used to certain amenities you know, sometimes, and, right? And so, uh, but, but I didn't have to worry about it. And that's, you know. It's, did did other jurisdictions generally welcome you when you called? Yeah, yes, yes, and they and and they did. But uh, you and I talked about about how I how I learned how to do it in the crematorium case when I got turned down once over the phone. I said they'll have to turn me down in person from now on, and I went to five jurisdictions all over the state in two days, every one of them within two minutes. Absolutely. We'd love to have you knowing, knowing they were like, Oh gosh, yeah. it's going to be such a pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Folks we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the good judgment podcast on the World Wide web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Well, well, let me ask you a question because you, you said something a minute ago and I, I, want, I want to emphasize this. So in the cases where the sides have not agreed to change venue, where there's a question as to whether or not you can get a, a, a fair and appropriate jury, um, it sounds like the, the, the technique or the way to do that is begin the jury selection process so that you have the evidence that, okay, these people do know a whole lot about this case and it doesn't sound like we can get a fair and impartial jury. Is that fair to say? Is that how you did that in the cases where there was an agreement to change venue? The, I really thought we were going to be able to get a jury in the Lynn, Lynn Turner antifreeze trial. I knew that it would be difficult, but I, I, I thought we could. So that was literally just my own guess was, was wrong. Uh, Typically, though, uh, they either des- everybody decides we've got to change venue, or in it. In, when I went, when they asked me to come down to Atlanta on the Nichols Courthouse Killer case, the defense did not want to move from Fulton County, and the only consideration—I think it still is—but the only consideration then to of change venue would be if you had security concerns. Well, no longer did they have security concerns. They literally had twelve undercover. Uh, sheriff's deputies, police officers in the courtroom at all times. And of course, Mr. Nichols had, had already the jury later on, the jury found that he killed a judge on the bench. So they were not, 
they went overboard. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about one of the practical considerations that we haven't really talked about. And that is you've got a case to try and it's going to take a month or it's going to take, you know, two months, whatever, or or whatever it may take six months. Um, how do you manage your personal caseload during that period of time? What, what's the, what's the magic? You know, how do you, what's the secret to that? So, uh, we are, are very lucky when they called me for the Nichols case. And, uh, when they called me, you were still a sitting judge. at that. Yeah. Oh yes. I was a sitting judge. I was, uh, I had, um, uh, I was I was a sitting judge looking forward to a nice summer. Uh, uh, <laughs> but when the, when the other judge recused himself, um, I had not. They had asked. Uh, they had asked judges, "Would you take this case?" And I think there were about ten ten judges. They were all over the press that said yes, they would take the case. And all of them, I, I, I looked at all of them. I said, "We're we're going to be in good shape with any one of them," and. Uh, they called me. They called me, and I, I, I just went on for about twenty minutes about what whoever the judge they decided what they should do. You know, they should hammer down on this or whatever. And uh, uh, that's when he surprisingly asked me. He said, uh, "You know, it was one of those things where I said we've talked all over the state, and you're the one that we've decided." It was only three hours later when I'm going, "Oh, they just pulled <laughs> they pulled a big one on me." But wh- one of the things they did was say, "We we've got to get a judge from a bigger circuit because we can't take one from a circuit with two judges." I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they. Can, they um, from a logistics reason, it, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and when they, when I got Nichols, the call went out to because I wasn't going to be able to do my cob work. That's just plain and simple. And uh, the call went out all across the state, and literally every week there'd be a judge coming in from uh, from maybe Augusta or Macon. I, I know one. We have a federal judge now that that came in on the. Fourth of July week. Wow! Uh, that, that but so just colleagues volunteering absolutely, absolutely. to come and, and, and they pick did up it. The slack. They did it for two reasons because we know all of these folks, and they did it for the right reason. And two, they didn't. They were just glad that they weren't the ones. <laughs> <laughs> could be worse. Could be me. That's basically the thing. Well, well, let's let's talk about some of the individual cases, and we don't want to spend you know too much of your time. But I'd like to talk about because they each have their own nuances and differences. And I want to start with. Uh, the Brian Nichols case that you tried in Fulton. Um, and just again, because some of our listeners may be too young, we have a lot of law students and people that listen. Let's talk a little bit about and recap the facts of that case. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell my recollection quickly. Of yeah, that. And kinda... if you jump in and, and correct what I'm wrong. But essentially what happened was Brian Nichols was a prisoner uh, who was having a trial in a rape case in Fulton County. Um, during the course of that trial, he overpowered one of the guards who was there. He took that guard's gun uh, and went directly to the courtroom where his his rape trial was being uh, tried. And he killed the judge, Judge Barnes, who was his, his trial judge, uh, also killed the court reporter who was sitting there in the courtroom. Uh, and then fled the courthouse and on his way out of the courthouse, killed a deputy, shot a deputy on the way out uh, and then escaped. And in the course of, of making his escape over the next 24 hours, also killed a, a federal agent, I believe a, a, a agent of uh, ATF or the, something like that. But, but at any rate, killed four people. Uh, and so 
that trial, as I recall, was actually started by another judge who ultimately, I think, recused from the case. Um, and when you picked it up, um, that case was a bit bogged down. I think I'm saying that, but I mean, it was fair to say that that, <laughs> that case, was kind. that case had, had stalled out. And, 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 and I think you came in and said, we're trying this case. Is that, is that fair to say? It's saying we're, we're going to get this case ready to try. You know, uh, I think that's why I was chosen it, basically to just say, I, I want to say this in a professional man manner, but it was like to come in there and kick butt and 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 uh, well, they got the right man for well, that, Jim. Well, and I and I guess I guess and hopefully do it as a, as very professionally. But I went in and just said, "We're going to try this case." And, and I think uh, you set a date right off the bat, didn't I, you? Said I six did. weeks or whatever it was. And, you said, well, and it's gonna we be ready. We, and and they talked about at least one side talked about we we've, we've got all this. And I said, "I've got all the time in the world. I, <laughs> I've got I've got twelve hours a day, and I'll do whatever we need to do." And actually the previous judge that had had it for three years had done a tremendous amount of work and had done, he, he got battered and bruised from a lot of different angles, but he had done a tremendous job getting it together. And I basically said, we're going to, we're going to accept his rulings uh, unless some, some uh, higher court comes down and says, uh, changes the law, we're going to accept his rulings. And so he, they had done that. Uh, there was a court reporter. There were three court reporters a day, and I was just, they were just meeting me from Fulton County. They were the A team. And one of them came in, and I'd set the, I'd set the trial for July 10th. And uh, one of them came in and said, uh, 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 and she was really nervous. And I said, gosh, I, I can't be that mean. And she said, oh, no, I've heard good things about you, but in the courtroom, you scared me a little bit. And I said, <laughs> then it's working. Said, you know, it's wor it's actually working. So, uh, pause three court three court reporters a day that's right so they would they worked out the logistics on who's going to move out what equipment and who's going to record where that was all on them you didn't have to touch it they didn't all all done all done and they stayed with you throughout the trial a absolutely the, the three of them figured it out who needed to be up and all that kind of stuff and they i think they had their own shifts and they were doing d daily transcripts so uh were all, they producing the transcripts back to the court they were producing them i could have I, you could have read them if you wanted. Yes, to. and okay. I and sometimes I did if I had motions or whatever. But uh, one of them came in, Wade, and said to me, "You said July tenth, and said, uh, it, it, do you really mean that?'" And and I looked at her like, "Yes, I mean, you know, I was like," and she said, "I, I thought you did," and she said, um, "And she said that's all I needed," and I said, "Well, I, you know." Can you tell me a little bit? And she said, "Well, we had a vacation plan, but we can we can change this, and and uh, we need to get it tried." And she said, "I just wanted to make sure you said what you meant." I said, "Unless I'm in the hospital, <laughs> and I, we're we're going to be doing it." And uh, and it worked out well. And it at that point, it needed to be tried because if if uh, anybody in the Atlanta area remembered the day that it happened. So the clock started ticking. So a lot of us have murder cases, particularly death penalty murder cases, that might not be tried for two or three years, uh, especially after COVID. But this one, people were expecting it to be tried a, a month after that right, happened right, or right. whatever. And so it, the time was ticking. Uh, the time was ticking. And, you know, I, I, nobody's ever accused me of being perfect. And I would tell anybody who asked, 
don't try to be perfect because you're not going to make it. You know, it's going to. I think that's a really good point. I think when you feel like the eyes are all on you, you do try to be perfect. And you need to handle those cases the way you handle every other case, essentially. I mean, you might put a little more pressure on the lawyers to get, you know, get their ducks in a row and get the case straight. What about gag orders? Did, Did you in your big cases, did you have like in this one? Did you have gag orders? Uh, uh, I never, I never issued a gag order. There, there was a very comprehensive order in this case uh, because literally the press, the press, there were about twenty, at least twenty reporters there at all times. They literally had their own courtroom. And if you walked in this courtroom, a fairly big courtroom, you walked in there. They each had their workstations. Uh, there and that was that was all done. Fulton thankfully had a, a staff of two people just in their media relations in their court system, and they were able to help me manage manage that. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in that particular case, it had already been worked out who was going to be the you know the 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 camera in the courtroom and whatever. And a lot of the uh, at, when we were waiting for, I think, the last verdict, I went over to that courtroom and my staff lawyer and I for the first time and saw it. And there were some some reporters in there that I would know just from the Atlanta news that I never saw in the courtroom because they would be dressed, you know, uh, they wouldn't have to dress up for the courtroom and they had their own vi- video in there. So. Well, you said something interesting there, and we talked about this on our Rule 22 podcast uh, that we did a few months ago. Um you can designate as the judge that there be a, what we call a pool camera, that there be one camera in the courtroom that then feeds to all the other TV stations or, or whoever it is that wants that feed. Uh, is that something that you did to try to cut down on the number of just bodies, just people in the courtroom videoing and filming? The um, uh, We certainly did that. So in every one of these cases, there was only one camera in the courtroom and often you often you couldn't see the camera, uh, you know, well, I'm not going to say often, but I know in the antifreeze case, they, they, uh, you couldn't see the camera. They had basically had a, had a room there at the back. The, the courthouse was new enough where they did that early in my career. I would do a lot of preliminary hearings and then I would hold, I had wartime rank as a superior court judge when I was just the chief magistrate and I would do all the preliminary hearings and whatever, sometimes we would let in a couple cameras if there were two, two news outlets there, uh, rather than try to designate one. But I, I don't think I would do that again today. And so, well, let's talk about uh, one of the other big cases that you tried, uh, the Fred Tokar's murder case. And, and of course it being in Cobb County, I remember it really well, but Essentially, that was a case where, uh, for those who might not remember that one, um, it involved the shotgun murder of the wife of a well-known Atlanta attorney named Fred Tokars. Uh, That murder occurred in Cobb County. Uh, The murder took place in front of Tokars' young children. I remember that as one of the outstanding facts of that. Um, And Tokars, who had been involved in some shady dealings, uh, paid a middleman, a guy named Eddie Lawrence, to find a hitman uh, to kill uh, a fellow named to- named Curtis Rower, who was the one he ultimately found, but found a, he paid Eddie Lawrence to find somebody to to kill Tokar's wife. And this isn't this the one where the flowers were delivered to the door? No, that's, no, that's a, a different, different case. Okay, different case. Um, so Lawrence Lawrence kidnapped her to put her in her own put her in her own car with her kids, and then during the course of the ride, shot her and killed her. Um, that was a death penalty case as well, wasn't it? That was, and you had uh, 
uh, Bobby Lee Cook was the lead trial lawyer. Uh, and then you had other, four other fine lawyers. You had nine. You had, that was my first death penalty case. In 1997, so he had nine nine lawyers and then me. <laughs> you know, and, and at any one time, uh, one of them was shooting at me. I can promise you that. So, you were uh, you, you, at least five of them thought you were wrong at all times. Yeah, I would say. And some so, yeah. sometimes when I did a really good job, all nine were right. shaking their head. Yeah. Now, now, was there a change of venue in that case? That, or was there was, and this is when I came in as the closer uh, again. Is was uh, I actually got elected? Uh, there was an open seat in Cobb. And uh, so I ran for the seat where the judge that had been assigned Tokars, our senior judge. And w- one of the things that I ran on was, um, was you know, I, I, had, I had a terrific opponent, a, a very good opponent. But uh, I ran on, uh, I'm, you know, this criminal law was sort of my background, and this is what I've been doing. And I'm, I'm ready for it on day one. Well, I didn't really think I was ready for it on day one, and I wasn't. But I was, I was as ready as anybody that hadn't already been a superior court judge. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, we took it. It had been decided to go to Walker County, Georgia, which was a great venue. It was a rural area. But because it was a rural area, it, it, it had a lot of national publicity. For instance, the ABA in their magazine did a whole piece on it you know, high profile case in a small community. And it had the old, um, what were the old trucks that had the, the, I would call it the radar on top of it, but you know, it, but satellite trucks, the satellite. And I remember taking a, a photo of it one day and they were just all lined up. But, but, uh, I, I guess I would say not in answer to your question, you can't get too enamored of, of you know your situation or where where you are because you can fall into the trap we've seen people fall into and you just had to just say hey this could be my last case as a trial judge if you really do bad badly <laughs> now, now you sequestered that jury I, I i did and they were um uh, that was back in the old days where you you know you've talked about we don't do that anymore and and I mean we can but we don't do it very often that, that's right and after those 59 days 49 49 nights in the um, uh, in for the, Key for West the jury Inn in in Lafayette Georgia I'm surprised you know that well you and know so, why I know that the week before you started trying that case, I was a guest at the Key West Inn in Lafayette while I was trying a civil case oh, up there. Well, and they were so excited because the hotel was going to be full for the next month uh, for, <laughs> with Gerald for, for the next 44 nights. Exactly. That's right. They were so, so excited so, at the Key West Inn. Uh, I said when I left there, when I left there, I said um, the jury had convicted uh, Mr. Tokars, attorney Tokars, and uh, they had found all the aggravating circumstances, but had had spared his life. And uh, when I left there, I said, I hope I'll never have to do another sequestration because that was like a job of its own. And every day we had some issue. The jurors were were great. I mean, you had to deal with who's going to wash clothes and how they were going to make phone calls home yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Right? Uh, yes. Who and monitors was, their phone call while they're talking to And home. it was uh, it was. It was just unbelievable. And then uh, it was four years later when I tried my next death penalty case. And the defense attorney at that time, Jimmy Berry, who had more experience than anybody else, certainly in our jurisdiction and and maybe the state, said, uh, judge, judges all over the state are not sequestering them. 
And I said, well, the law says you have to. And he said, "Not. we don't think so if the defense waives it or whatever. And he gave me a list of four judges. And at the end of the day, all of them were saying to me, you, you, you thinking about sequestering? Do you want to get reelected? You know, and, um, and I, and, and particularly when our case went really well with the non-sequestration, the one that didn't have any publicity, I said, Hey, uh, how do you instruct the jury not to read news media coverage that, you know, good and well, they're going to read? Well, I'm, I'm hoping they don't. In this particular case, it was so monitored, 1997. They literally did not have a TV or phone in their room. And so there were two. What they, they do, play bridge? Well, they had two TV rooms, but a bailiff was always in there. And funny, we'd start out with one TV room, and they came to me and said, they need another TV room because there's a split. And I said, give them a dang TV room, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, a second one. Make and, another uh, TV room, the, for God's the, sake. The one thing those <laughs> jurors had, you didn't, you, again, you didn't ask me, but the one thing the jurors had is we fed them well. And like on Saturday night, they could pretty much go to, uh, they would typically go to Chattanooga, but they could go to a very nice restaurant. Uh, so they all look like they gain weight to me. You're putting them in vans to take them to dinner. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're with somebody. They literally can't talk to anybody unless a bailiff is standing right right there. Uh, and you so. did that for how many days? 40-something consecutive uh, days? Forty. It took us 15 days to pick the jury and then 44 nights. And did you – just one last thing because I don't get to see this very much. Did they get to go home or have – I don't want to go conjugal down. Conjugal visits. That's what I was going to say. Conjugal away. visits not, or whatever. Not unless a bailiff was watching. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother problem. Yeah, I do not want to be that bailiff. <laughs> let me <laughs> let me switch gears on that because I there was a I was reading up on that on that case. There was an an unusual motion for mistrial during the course of that case, where uh, Eddie Lawrence, who was the middleman who had who had was going to testify on behalf of the state in that case. Um, had been offered a deal where he could go into the federal witness protection program once he finished testifying because there were some allegations that Tokars was connected with organized crime and that sort of thing. And, and so court TV apparently decided in their wisdom that they did not want to show Mr. Uh, Lawrence's face on court TV while he testified. And the defense brought a motion for mistrial because the court TV decided not to show Eddie Lawrence's face. Is that is that correct? Well, let me <laughs> let me tell you, it was everybody, all the news media against court TV, and they wanted to show his face. His face, I'll just tell you, it's a public trial. His face looked the same as it all. He hadn't been altered or whatever. Uh, uh, later on, you know that he blew that deal. He blew the deal of the century by basically, uh, but but uh, uh, Court TV was the designated TV. And I got, I had all the media folks come into the courtroom. And I said, I said, do you remember what happened back uh, about a month before we tried this case? And this was not a question and answer. I said, here's what happened. I spent three, three days listening to y'all's lawyers, and I ruled against both the prosecution and the defense and had you uh, and allowed you to have cameras here. I said, if you're going to bicker among yourselves, I'm cutting off the cameras, and it's going to be a lot easier for me. <laughs> By the end of That's that day, they were right all then, court TV and everybody else. They, so they, they were yeah. hugging. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, folks, that's what we're going to we're going to pause right there because we've got much more to tell you with Judge Bodiford and 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 incredible stories. God, I wish I had a, a third of his stories. Remember to reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for your thoughts and ideas, reactions, etc. And if if you want to find an outline of this such as it is, you can find it that at goodjudgepod.com. So with that, I'm Wade Paget and I'm Tane Kell. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.